Yes, it's the place to be for all things franchising. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today's topic is UGRs, the hidden secrets to business success. Um, as you know, franchise simply are committed to ensuring you're informed about all relevant topics in business and franchising. And this particular aspect of the, the hidden secrets, if you like, uh, is, is one I think is really, really very relevant to every business. Um, uh, in fact, to every everybody. It's great to be with you again. And uh, I'm excited because as ever, I hunt down my celebrity guests and sometimes it takes time. This particular guest, I was privileged to uh, attend a session he was presenting at 12 months ago. And I believe it was the best one at the National Franchise Convention of 2017. So great to have with me today, Steve Simpson. Steve is, um, is, is a formidable uh, guest to have here. Um, his background is, you know, quite simply, he's recognized locally and, and globally as having unique and practical insights into transforming corporate cultures in businesses big and small. And his particular concept of UGRs or unwritten ground rules is something that really does help people cut through the complexity of creating a great workplace culture. Um, it, it really is a powerful concept, and since I've seen his presentation, it one's that it's one that rings with me on a daily basis. It, it, it's amazing because um, it enables managers and leaders to understand and strategically improve their workplace culture. And culture is a buzzword at the moment, and, and Steve's been very early on to this, so we'll understand more. So he's been invited to speak at conferences around the world, sharing his, in, his, his sort of insights and about cultures and, and how to unleash the potential that lies within that we're going to try and excavate today for you. So as well as conference presentations, Steve, Steve's got an amazing background. He's worked in-house with a range of organisations, including Kmart Australia and New Zealand, for something like eight years, McLaren Automotive in the UK, and most of us would be familiar with them. They're a formidable organisation. Um, he's worked with Goldfields in South Africa, Toyota in Australia, and in UK, the, the very well-known international chain, Next, uh, and also worked here in Australia with Boost Juice. So um, he, he's done that because of his credible reputation uh, and because he's, he's well-qualified in what he does. He's got a master's degree from the University of Alberta. Alberta. He's the author of two books and the co-author of another two. So, um, And his latest one, which I would certainly recommend, is titled A Culture Turn. So, Steve, great to have you with, you, with, have you with us. Good day there. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with um, you. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add to the, the bio there? Is there anything oh, I think that's it. I'm that's fine. <laughs> okay, uh, fine. I, I always hesitate over introductions, Brian, because uh, particularly when you're at a conference, some of the uh, introductions can be quite lengthy. And I think to myself, mm. uh, despite what you say in the introduction, these people are going to make up their own mind about whether this person is any good or not. So I guess the same applies in an interview like this. So let's get into yeah, it. Yeah. You're quite right, absolutely. Well, let's do that. No reason to hang around. So, um, so let, let's let's get into it. So, you, you've worked with you work with companies to help them understand and improve their culture. Um, very simply, why is that so important? Well, uh, uh, there's an interesting paradox, I think, Brian, in that I think the term culture is used increasingly nowadays. And yet the paradox, I think, is that I think few leaders really understand culture in simple and practical terms. What you don't understand, you don't manage. What you don't manage, you become victims of. And I think many leaders um, are, are aware that their culture might not be as good as it could be, uh, but feel a bit powerless to do anything about it. Um, 
And combined with that, um, we did some research a while back. And to be honest with you, we stumbled across this uh, question. It wasn't by design. We just stumbled across this question, which I now think is really quite fascinating and very powerful. The question we put in our research was this. If the culture of your workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance slash productivity? If the culture of our workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance? Now, Brian, when I'm working face-to-face -face with people, I love to ask the question and then get people to think about their particular organisation and put a percentage on it. When I do it face-to-face, -face, I stress that zero is a legitimate answer. You might think the culture now realistically is as good as it's going to get. So zero is a legitimate answer. But then I tell people, we gave people in our research a sliding scale. Started from zero and then went up to 10%, 20% and then 100 and 100% plus. Brian, I remain gobsmacked by the responses I get to that question. We were surprised with our research results. When I do it face to face, um, and by the way, I stress zero being a legitimate answer. So I tell people, I'm after the event, I tell people, I'm deliberately playing with your brain there, trying to drag you down, because consistently, regularly, people will say 30%, 50%, 80%, 100% plus. It's not uncommon when I'm working with leadership groups for an average to be around 40%. And that is staggering. When that happens, I say to people, let's presume you've been wildly over-optimistic. Harvard, would you take it? And the correct answer here is duh. Because, uh, you know, people are searching for ways to gain improvements in performance. My point is that the capacity for substantial performance improvement rests at our feet. It is the culture of our workplace. And when I, I sort of say this half jokingly, but there's a serious edge to this. When people say on average 40% improvement would occur, my response is, well, don't tell people above you. If you've got a board, don't tell the board this. Because if the board heard about this and you are effectively not doing much about it, and yet you implicitly know that there is this capacity for improvement, then shame on you. Um, mm. You know, and, and that's sort of half in a joke. But that's what I get excited about when, when organizations reveal that they believe there is improvement of that magnitude that rests at our feet, then it's time to say, well, let's get serious about this. Let's tap into at least some of that to transform cultures. Because the other thing that, I, that, that I, I've learned over the years, and I've been doing this a long time, Brian, the other thing that I've learned is that there are so many unhappy, unhappy people in their workplace. There are so many cultures that are ordinary at best. And I think that's a crying shame. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity to differentiate ourselves based on our culture. Not many organizations that have a product or service monopoly. We all have competitors and most of our competitors will offer similar things. So the thing that can differentiate us and the thing that cannot be copied is the culture of our workplace. Um, customers get that, suppliers get that, prospective staff get that. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there are so few organizations that have genuinely dynamic, positive, productive cultures that uh, I think we can genuinely trend, uh, differentiate ourselves based on that alone and all that comes with it, including performance improvement.
That's that's quite an eye opener, really, particularly those statistics. And I suppose, look, the people that respond to your questions, whether live or or in a survey, they're like all of us, aren't they? We've got an ego, and we're there to protect our reputation because, uh, as you say, once you expose yourself, then you know your own self confidence becomes a matter as well as a a problem. So uh, um, it's interesting, isn't it, Steve? Because you know, every business they say you say to them, "What's your key? You know, what what, what do you do that's different?" They say, "We deliver great service." Mm-hmm. And I suppose culture is, is what that's about. What, what would be your comments on that? Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, and my concept, which I'll talk to you later um, in a moment about Brian, emerged out of a service context because I used to work. I used to work um, almost solely in the customer service domain. And people would send, uh, organizations would send people off to customer service training. And the training, you know, when they're lucky, was quality and valuable and useful training. And they go back to their organization. Within a week, all of that training has gone out, gone out of the window. Why? Because the culture doesn't nourish it. The culture isn't right. So I quickly learned that unless the culture is right, spend all the money you like on things like customer service training, it'll count for pretty close to zero unless the culture is right. Um, I, I attended for a, real, a national real estate company a while back, their conference, and it was in Cairns. And I flew up there because I live in Melbourne. And um, so while I was there, I thought I'd sit in on the morning session. And the um, session was run internally, and they were talking about various issues that they had in their real estate company. And almost every issue that they raised the solution was, oh, we've got to edu- educate our people better. We've got to train our people, almost everyone. And I'm thinking all along, I'm thinking, you guys don't get it because unless the culture is right, this so-called training is going to go nowhere. Um, and I think that's, that's a fact that is overlooked in so many cases. Not deliberately, um, but it, it is, I think, fundamentally overlooked. The culture is the foundation stone upon which everything sits. And if that ain't right, then your customer service won't be right, your internal teamwork won't be right, your, um, the extent to which people will give discretionary effort to themselves won't be right, there'll be internal warfare within the organisation, franchisees won't like the franchisor and vice versa. Um, it's just, you know, it's the foundation stone. And mostly I think it's, it's lip service is paid to it um, because and I think there's a good reason, because it is such a complex concept in most people's eyes. Um, and that's the conundrum. It makes absolute sense. I, my mind goes back to 15, 20 years ago. I was involved with a public company. Well, we took it to an IPO. Um, and it had fantastic potential. Had some tremendous people. But the CEO and founder of the business had this real cultural issue. And uh, eventually... After several years, it fell apart, and, uh, and exactly because of that, because it wasn't a shortage of training, it just wasn't implemented and taken on board by everybody because of that, I suppose, cynical approach. If he's if he doesn't behave, well, why should you expect us to behave? You know, um, so that makes sense. So that leads us then to, to to dig a bit deeper with you, Steve. So, what is your concept of UGRs or unwritten ground rules? Perhaps you could share it with us, because I, I think this stuff's delicious. Um, well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate the feedback. Um, so I created con- the concept of UGRs, Unwritten Grand Rules, in recognition of the fact that this whole notion of culture is so complex. Indeed, it must have been 30 years ago, I was invited to present on the topic of culture. 
And I'd recently, prior to that, completed a master's degree. I went back to my books and, and looked at what I'd studied on culture and um, decided that I could not present this back uh, at this presentation I was invited to present to because it was so philosophical, so complex, so complicated. You know, it was just, it didn't make any practical sense. So I created my concept of UGRs, unwritten grand rules, which I define as people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. So if any of your listeners get any value out of this conversation we're having, Brian, my contention is that that point should be number one on the list. UGR's unwritten grand rules are people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. I'm gonna come back to the importance of that definition. So some examples of UGR's that I come across in the workplace include things like, at our meetings, it isn't worth complaining because we know nothing will get done. Uh, the only time anyone gets spoken to by the boss is when something is wrong. The organisation talks about the importance of customer service, but we know they're not really that serious about it, so we don't have to worry about it, and so on. It's the UGRs, in an organisation that has documented policies, procedures, standards of service, prescriptive job descriptions, all of the procedures written up, which counts most, the documentation or the UGRs? That's a silly question. We all know that the UGRs count most. The incredible thing about UGRs is that they are seldom talked about openly. People have to deduce them. A good test for UGRs is the new person. And the new person is lucky they get an induction or orientation where they get told this is the way we do things around here. And then they go and find out the truth. And they find out by deduction. They'll look for certain cues and clues to deduce the UGRs in their new organization. Um, so again, when I'm working face-to-face -face with people, I'll, I'll get them to reflect on what is it that new people are looking for or looking at to deduce the UGRs? What is it specifically? And I get people to have conversations about this because this happens with us all. It's a function of being human beings. By the way, UGRs exist at a human level. It's not confined to work. It's a function of humans being together. So any group of people that we're with, there will be UGRs. It can be in a social context, a sports team, whatever, whatever collection of people we get, there will be UGRs. And normally, the vast majority of us, when we're new to a group, we'll stay quieter than we normally would otherwise be. Why? Because we're checking out the UGRs. And we don't have the term UGRs in our heads, but that's the, that's the way we operate. That's how we're wired as human beings. Why do, we, why do we stay quieter to check out the UGRs? In order that we can conform. That's the power of UGRs. We conform. Now, there, there are exceptions to this, of course, but the vast majority of us will fall into what line with what we deduce are the UGRs. And this happens at an unconscious level. We'll be looking at stuff. So we'll look at how are people treated? Um, how do people talk about the boss? What do people say about the boss when they're there? What do they say when the boss walks away? Um, how are customers treated? What is said of a customer, about a customer after the phone has been put down? Franchise contexts are really interesting because in a head office, or I'd prefer to call them a support office, um, uh, I'd want to see how franchisees are talked about in that support office. Um, mm. But more than that, how do people in this work area talk about people in that work, work area? Um, 
What about punctuality? Are people um, arriving at the death knock? Are they looking at the second hand of their watch? Where does it sprint? What's its finish time? Um, does 10 o'clock meaning start at 10 or do people saunter in at quarter past 10? This works in both directions. If there's a five o'clock finish and everyone is still there at 6.30, is the first person to leave at 20 to 7 frowned upon? Uh, if you arrive at 10 o'clock for a 10 o'clock meeting, does that demonstrate to other people that you're not busy enough? So look, there's an infinite number of cues that we subconsciously are tuning into to deduce the UGRs. Brian, at the conference that um, we met, I think I put up a photograph of the most remarkable photo that I have taken at McLaren Automotive in the UK. Um, I'm working. I'm not working with the Formula One team. I'm working with the automotive division, the division that makes road cars, and it is truly remarkable. I'm not a car buff. Well, I am now, having been a McLaren for four years in a row. Um, <laughs> it, it is truly remarkable, and the premises are on a big tract of land. And once you get through security, which is tight, it's probably a 750-meter drive before you get dropped off. And one morning, I've got a driver. We get through security. And I asked the driver 50 metres past security, can you stop here? Now he's surprised by this, but nonetheless stopped. And I took a photo, which I think I showed at the conference where we met, Brian, because it's a photograph of a gardener stood next to a hedge. And the gardener has got a bloody tape measure. He's measuring the height of the hedge. And I say to people, what's the UGR? Then people rightly say, Precision, attention to detail. And I say to people, I've worked with McLaren enough to know that that is a prevailing dominant UGR at McLaren. It is get it right, attention to detail. In fact, there's attention in the business because um, it, there are no robots at McLaren. It's done by hand. And so there's no, there's no time. The, the robots aren't dictating time. People are. And everyone wants to get it perfectly right, but demand is now it's strip, outstripping supply. So there's pressure, get the cars out, get the cars out. But the pressure is, no, it's gotta be 100% right. And that UGR of attention to detail has even infected the gardeners. I mean, the gardeners are measuring the height of the hedge. And by the way, this is out of the view of the public. The public don't see that because you're way past security, well, 50 meters past security. So. My contention is that UTRs drive people's behaviour, and I, I choose these words carefully. I think there is nothing more powerful in a team or an organisation than its UGRs, nothing. And yet the remarkable thing is that they drive people's behaviour. They're not always negative. Um, if you're on a positive team right now, by definition, there are positive UTRs. If you're on an ordinary team, by definition, it follows there are ordinary UTRs. We're human beings, we'll normally get a mix. But the biggest question maybe I can put to your listeners, Brian, is are our current UGRs a function of luck or chance or are they by design? In most cases, my personal view is that they are a function of luck or chance. And when people say to me, we've got 40% improvement, performance improvement from improving our culture, I say to people, well then, you must never now leave this to chance. We've got to grab a hold of this and craft the kind of culture and therefore the UGRs that will ensure our success and make this a great place to work. Which segues beautifully into my next question um, because uh, you talk about 
companies using the five-step approach and the, the tape measure for the hedge. Um, and yes, I do recall that photograph, actually. It was, it was quite interesting. So the, the, the fact that through using that process, they understand and improve their culture. So can you walk us through that in a bit more detail? Because I think this is what I might call the meat and potatoes of really of what you bring to the table. 100%, Brian. So we can use UTRs as the vehicle for understand and strategically, and I'm using that word carefully, strategically and deliberately, strategically improving their culture. My argument is that we can make cultures, I think this comes from a misunderstanding of the term culture. And I think many people, well, at least some people, resist culture because they think in these terms. Making our workplace happier does, is not strategically managing the culture. Managing it, making it happier might mean that we're, we merely are happier going out of business. Um, so we've got to be strategic about our culture. And the first of our five-step approach for using UTRs as the vehicle for culture change says forget UTRs because it's a golden question that we, I think, all must, must consider. And the golden question, which links to this first step, which I call um, envision, the first step is underpinned by this question. What are the key cultural attributes we need in place for us to truly be successful and to make this a great place to work? Now, put more simply, we can ask it this way. What does our culture need to look and feel like for us to truly be successful and to make this a great place to work? Many organisations have value statements. Sometimes the values statements can answer that question. But my concern about value statements is that typically, I think they are conceived or considered as separate from the business and its strategic plan. So my argument is we need to reposition the whole notion of culture as the foundation stone upon which things sit. And I think that's what that question does. The question is, what are the key cultural attributes we need in place for us to truly be successful and to make this a great place to work? We need to hone in, and by the way, we can get staff involved in this, um, but the leadership team makes, needs to make the final decision about this, about painting a picture of our aspirational culture, which is not for the sake of being soft and flowery. It's in order to make us successful and to make this a great place to work. And once those are focused upon, that's step one. That's the envision step. I don't know if I need to pause there, Brian, or I should go on. Uh, well... No, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated because franchising from time to time gets in the spotlight for some of the wrong reasons because franchisors fail to, to provide the service and the support that they probably promised or implied. And that's where I see the UGR. So, I mean, in franchising, I think the impact is massive, more so than in conventional businesses because the culture sort of grows exponentially or the impact of it with every extra outlet that's put into the organisation. So to me, whatever you don't get right gets gets <laughs> gets multiplied uh, as as the business grows. So if you don't get your culture right, really you are sowing a time bomb. Um, so yeah. I suppose I suppose if we go beyond that five step approach, then. Um, Obviously, there are businesses in all different stages of development, different types of people involved in the businesses. We all, most of us know about disc profiles and various sorts of characters and so on, which you've got to wrestle with. So 
will the UGR concept be successful in, in every every business, Steve? No, Brian, that's a really good question. And I want to come back to the other four steps in a moment, but that's a really good question because I get the complexity of the, of the franchise business. Right? I, I, I work with a number and currently working with a number of franchise businesses and I get the complexity. But I would say with regard to step one, that is painting a picture of our, of our aspirational culture, at one level, our, and I'm going to call it support office, not head office. I'm going to call it support office. The support yeah. office needs to be um, absolutely driven by its aspirational culture because at the support office, that, that question needs to be considered and those cultural attributes, which can be called values, it doesn't matter what we call them, those, those cultural attributes need to lock in and we need to be driven by those at the support office level. To a degree, we need to convince franchisees about the value of creating great cultures. So I get the fact that we can't impose this on franchisees, but we can get them excited about it. And I mean, one franchise organisation I'm working with now is seeing a direct relation, positive relationship between the cultures that the franchisees are able to establish and bottom line performance. All their measures of profitability and bottom line performance are correlating directly with the, um, the culture measures, um, the current UGRs within the franchise franchisee. So I, I get there's complexity there. And to the extent that we can convince a franchisee that there is this direct relationship between getting a great culture, strategically great culture, and bottom line performance, then you know we've got, we've got to do that as well. We've got to convince them of that. But then we go to the next step which is step two, and that is, let's now find out what the current UGRs are in relation to those key cultural attributes or values. I think most culture measurement tools have got it wrong because they come in with their template and say, we're gonna measure you against our template, and we're gonna compare you against what all other organizations we've, we've measured using the same template. I think it's the wrong way around. The starting point should be, what's our aspirational culture, our key cultural attributes, now let's find out what our UGRs are in relation to those key cultural attributes. So I'll give you an example. Um, if a key cultural attribute was um, innovative thinking, we want people constantly to be innovative in thinking, new ways to do things, constantly improving. I wonder how your people would complete this sentence, because this is step two, which we call assess, finding out what the current UGRs are. I wonder how your people would complete this sentence around here when someone comes up with a new idea. Because that's opening a window into the, con into the constant improvement um, cultural attribute. If um, pe treating people with respect was a cultural attribute or a value we had in place, I wonder how people would complete this sentence. Around here, people are treated. Um, if safety is a cultural attribute that needs to be in place, I wonder how people will complete this sentence. Around here, when an unsafe act occurs. So getting people to complete these sentences to what we call lead-in sentences is what we call a UGR stock take, and that is step two. It's assessing our UGRs in relation to our key cultural attributes. That's what we've done with McLaren. That's what we've done with the franchise that I'm currently working with right now. That's what we did with um, Kmart over eight years. Um, we do a UGR stock take, find out what the current UGRs are. And Brian, that's confronting to leaders because you get stuff back 
that you don't want to see or hear. Um, but we are capturing people's perceptions, their perceptions of their reality, and we either deal with this or we don't. And to change the culture, we've got to acknowledge the current perceptions and UGRs, and to the extent that they are a concern to us, we've got to do something about it. And so this whole step says, let's find out the current UGRs, let's share that with as many people as possible, preferably everyone, and let's identify ways that we can make improvements around areas of concern. Um, that's step two. Right, so, and, and running beyond that, I suppose, I don't know whether, you, whether you want to outline the other steps at this point or, or leave that to be something that people can, uh, can access later? Yeah, look, um, I'll, I'll mention step three and um, give people access to a little booklet that we, I'm happy to make available to people, which outlines those steps in more detail. Um, the, the third step is what we call teach. And teach says, well, comes from this position. My belief, and I honestly believe this, is that to the extent that people are unhappy in their workplace, the vast majority do not want it to be that way. They've just given hope of it being any different. This applies to leaders as well. UTRs is often a revelation to people. Once people are exposed to the UTRs concept, all of a sudden we can give people hope because they understand how their personal behaviours contribute to the prevailing UGRs and culture. So the teach phase says, let's teach as many people, preferably everyone, about the concept of UGRs. Because once you learn about UGRs, you then have to make a conscious choice about your own personal behaviours. And we want to get shared ownership of this. We want, people, we want not only leaders fighting for this, but we want staff fighting for and getting excited about our aspirational culture. And I know from experience, this can happen. I mean, Kmart's a classic example. I don't know if you're aware of this, Brian. They had lost money 10 years in a row at Kmart. West Farmers purchased the business, gave the new leader, Guy Russo, a brilliant leader, three years to turn it around. He turned it and won. And now it's, it's making half a billion dollars in profit. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not the only measure. Their culture has totally transformed. There is such pride in their culture, which from what used to be a toxic culture, now there's a queue of people a mile long wanting to join the business. And there is such pride in the culture and people protect that positive, dynamic, productive culture. So we can get shared ownership of this. And I think that's, to the extent there's a silver bullet about this, I think that's it where we get shared ownership of the culture, not only the leaders fighting for this, but staff as well. And the teach element, I think, addresses that, um, gets people excited. Now, leaders have got to be serious about this, and they are the primary drivers, no question. But staff also contribute to this, and that's what we've got to tap into as well. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Actually, it's interesting you say. I think a lot of us will be familiar with, you know, the, the West Farmers takeover of, of Coles and, and that whole that whole conglomerate and seeing Kmart really just transform. And it's interesting because people make comparisons with Big W, owned by Woolies, direct competitor, has continued to struggle for years. And yet, even from the same stable as Kmart, you've got Target, which I understand is still struggling. So there's something that happened in Kmart uh, with, um, with De Rosso there. Uh, and no doubt influenced by the unwritten ground rules that made that difference. So I think that's a brilliant case study, an example of just what it can do in a business. And let's face it, they're in the most competitive area of business, and yet they've managed to 
lift themselves up and, as you say, make some really serious profits. So there's a, there's a, there's a bottom line impact. The, I'm sorry to interrupt there, but hardly gone into yeah. the online space either. I mean, it, it's still bricks and mortar primarily, Kmart. It, it is truly remarkable. I mean, they had literally mm. lost money for 10 years in a row. Look at the business now. Stand outside of a Kmart store and look at the people walking out with their queues, with their, with their um, trolleys overflowing. It, it, it is a remarkable business. And I see the two you know, major supermarkets now and all their promotion and advertising, it's all on price. Or that's, it becomes a price war. In the absence of creating a brilliant culture, you know, it just becomes a price war. And that's a path we don't want to go down, I don't think. Um, and Target has proved a bit more difficult, but they have, they've turned. They've, they've grabbed a hold of this. And I think uh, Kmart um, just stood for something and gained that space so rapidly um, that ta Target is now more, more slowly, but I think is turning. And um, they've got good leaders at Target as well. So that'll be an interesting story to unfold. But I'm confident about Target as well. It's, it's a remarkable story. You know, over the years, in you know, different careers, different organisations, it's generally the person on the work on, on on the on the work floor, whether it's at the desk or, or on the shop floor or in in the factory, it doesn't matter. Are the ones who complain about management, and that that attitude filters up. So managers, they suffer the the indignity or the insults from the people below or the lack of respect. But ultimately, they're also um, part of the chain, if you like. So. Um, when we look at this and, and and how a company like Kmart or anyone else, how they actually embrace this, so is it the job of leaders? How 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 does how does the ball start rolling? Okay, so I say to leaders, and this should be this should be comforting to leaders because I give leaders a bit of an out. I say to leaders, and I, honestly, I truly believe, truly believe this as well. I say that as leaders, you are primarily, but not solely, responsible for the culture. And that does not absolve leaders of their responsibility, but they are not solely responsible. Now, there's proof of this. We can have a good leader with an ordinary culture. Why? Because of the staff. We can have an ordinary leader with a good culture. Why? Because of the staff. Staff play the game of UGRs. And I'll be honest with you, I think many, a lot of staff, I don't know if many, a lot of staff take a cop-out position. They point upwards and say, if only they'd fix things up, we'd be okay. That's a cop-out. So. I think leaders need to drive this and must drive it, but we must not let staff absolve their responsibility. And mm. um, there's a hard edge to this. It means challenging behaviours. It means having conversations about what people deem as inappropriate behaviours. It means having conversations about, well, what do these cultural attributes or values actually mean? Let's talk about what they actually mean. And do we have any examples of us doing this well? Are there opportunities for improvement? We need, we need to talk about our culture. We need to put this on the, on the table. And I say it needs to be a top three priority of the leadership team. People deduce what's important. And if people deduce that the culture isn't important, guess what? It's not. So you can have all the documentation you like. You can have all your priorities written on documents that you like. Unless people deduce it's important, it's not. And so. Um, you know, it, this has got to be a top three priority, but it's not the sole province of leaders. Right, and I, I, that, that makes sense. And there's a lot of things we could talk for ages, actually. I mean, where I see this, this coming from, because at the end of the day, the leader needs to facilitate 
but I, I can't see a session on UGRs being conducted successfully by a CEO or, or, or a board chairman or whatever it might be because the, 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 they're, they're literally setting the agenda. It's something where you do need someone to facilitate it. A bit like having a strategic planning session or even in franchising the franchise advisory council. You know, if the, if the franchise all leads and chairs that, that meeting with the franchisees, there's always that intimidating presence and their ability to manipulate the outcome. So that, that, that's all fascinating stuff and, and something that I'll lead to in a moment. So, look, um, Steve, been delightful talking with you. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I, it's, it's, such a, it's such an inspiring session because there's so much you can learn. So I really do appreciate your time. And uh, I, I'm sure everyone that's listening will, will join me in saying it's, it's been a privilege having the opportunity of getting to know you and, and hearing what truly are words of wisdom. So. If people would like to learn a bit more about UGRs uh, or, or get some information that you referred to earlier, I think, um, where, where could they go? How would they go about that? And thanks for the feedback, Brian. I really appreciate it. Look, my website is uh, steve-simpson.com. And if people want access to that um, a booklet, which talks about the five-step approach and, and interestingly, our research as well, where we ask the, uh, the question I mentioned up front. Um, people can email me personally and I'm happy to email a copy of that booklet which is um, my email address is steve at ugrs uh, for ugrs.net so it's steve at ugrs.net Excellent. Look, if anybody wants to get in contact with Steve and has any difficulty or, or mislays the the, uh, the contact details please contact me. Um, you can always email me, Brian at Franchise Simply or give us a call on one three hundred. 96136. So, so in closing, Steve, um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, is, is there a final point or observation, something that's clicked in your mind that you'd like to like to make or add to, to what we've discussed today? Well, Brian, your last reflections there prompted a, a thought in my mind in that, um, it, it, you know, we've got to acknowledge that if you go down this territory, it's, it's potentially very confronting. And maybe that's a reason many organisations don't go down this path because um, to find out what the, what the real UGRs are is, I, with, almost without exception, a confronting process. Um, so it is, it's tough because leaders don't go out deliberately thinking every day, how can I make the culture worse? I mean, we're all doing our best. We're all trying our hardest. We're all working hard. And, and, and this is tough. But if we can get past and accept the fact that um, sometimes, well, in relation to that, sometimes people's perceptions are dead wrong, um, absolutely 100% wrong. But unless we capture that, unless we find out what their perceptions are, then we won't be able to deal with it. So if we can get past and accept the fact that this is potentially going to be confronting and it's not necessarily all your fault, um, and I often feel I have to lead leaders by the hand to walk through that difficulty. Uh, if we can get past this, this can be a genuinely exciting and I think point of differentiation process, um, because I see so few organisations actually do, doing this. So, yeah, but that's not to acknowledge the difficulty associated with it, because it is, it is a tough a tough ask. No, yeah, I appreciate that observation. I think it's something we see if, if any of us used any, any tests with prospective franchisees or employees or, or amongst ourselves in, within the organisation, and, and something like a DISC profile comes to mind. People immediately intimidated because they say, "Ah, oh, it's going to show the negative aspects of me." Therefore, they feel vulnerable. So, now I'll take your point exactly. I think everyone would share that. So, um, that, that's fantastic. Um, thank you, Steve Simpson. Um, so, just to say, this is Brian Keane from Franchise Simply signing off. 
Looking forward to being with you when we interview our next Franchise Radio Show guest.